Hello, welcome to From Poverty to Power. I'm with one of my um, heroes, <laughs> Naomi Hussain, um, who I reviewed her great book on Bangladesh a couple of years ago. Um, and she's a senior research fellow at IDS. And she's one of those rare researchers who's capable of communicating in normal English. So I'm hoping to uh, interview, uh, to keep her on that track as we discuss her latest book, which is co-edited with Sam Hickey, which is, a, uh, the, the topic is education, um, and based on six countries. We won't go into a vast amount of methodology and all that stuff. Let's just talk about what it says. Um, and the overall question is, what is the politics that leads to successful attempts to improve the quality of education? So, Naomi, hi. Hi, Duncan. Thank you so much for having me no, on this. No problem. Tell us about why you wanted to do a book on education just introduce us to the book's kind of core argument. Sure. Well, I have, I have to say, first of all, that Sam and I were kind of surprised to find ourselves doing a book on education, partly because neither of us are really education experts. You know, it, well, it, did, it did kind of happen. We wanted to do all this work on what were the politics of getting social provisioning right in different countries, and we, we picked on education. I think Sam was under the impression that I was more of an education expert than I really am. But I have done some work in education, particularly in Bangladesh, and so we, we decided we'd do this. The thing is that there's, there's actually very, very little literature on the politics of education, even in, even in the North. It's not, what do you mean by the politics of education? I mean, I mean you know, the power relations that shape how much money is spent on education, you know, how teachers are held accountable, what kinds of you know, curriculum and so on. Curriculum, perhaps, is the one area where there's more work. But when you look at the political science studies, it's, it, they say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's kind of hard for the political scientists to actually get inside the household. And actually in the household is where most education decisions get made. Okay. Plus there's an issue of data. So we, so, you know, we, I think a lot of people agreed. And, you know, the education research community has been really generous about this. They've said it's been really a really helpful addition to the, to the debate. So it's quite serious and, in, in some, you know, quite serious and, theoretically and methodologically robust study, and I won't go into that because I know you Good. don't like that sort of thing. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, just, you know, bring it down, bring it down, market for my benefit, please. Um, so the, the starting point of the book is the learning crisis. So what's this crisis? Well, the learning crisis is that, and, you know, we, uh, we're here at the, uh, the ESA conference. We heard Lamp Pritchett talking about this yesterday. A lot of countries, a lot of countries, a lot of developing countries, in particular, have uh, spent a lot of money on, on education, get a lot of kids in school. But at, at the end of, of their primary school education, many kids, in some cases, some countries, half or more kids, come out of primary education, they can't read, they can't write, they can't do maths. The learning crisis is that lots of kids are going to school and they're not really learning very much there. And, and the book argues that it's much harder to get governments to take that seriously than to take the getting them into school in the first place, seriously. Absolutely. Why there's is a, that? Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a politics of bums on seats. You know, politicians really love to expand schools. You know, it's, 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 a, it's one of those re remarkable things. And it's kind of hard to realise it now. But, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, if you said that almost all kids in the developing world would at least in theory have a chance to go to school, you know, by the end of the Millennium Development Goals period, You'd have been, you would have, you know, not believed them because so many kids were out of school. And yet now, the really remarkable thing is, all around the world, most kids everywhere have a chance of going to school. There are school places for almost all kids, but actually, what goes on in those classrooms is really the problem. So, politicians and policymakers and parents and teachers and trade unions and donors and everyone loves to build schools and to fill the classrooms with 
teachers and desks and books and students. There's lots of reasons why that is. You can, you can count. You can count these things. You can see the results. You can say, you know, 99% of children are at school in the right age. You can count how many textbooks you've delivered. It looks really good on manifestos. You know, it's, it looks very good for politicians to be handing out these books and, and shaking hands with teachers and so on. Teachers love it, of course, because there's more jobs, because their unions get stronger. Uh, donors like it because it's, it's, it's human development, in theory at least. You know, it's, it's, it's money going to the poorest. Everyone's a, everyone's a winner, if you like. The politics of learning are entirely different. And I think we're only really beginning to learn that, you know, understand what's going on there. And that really is what this book is about. And what I should say is that we do not in this book, and we cannot in this book for reasons, among other things, of data, show that there is a politics of different learning outcomes, that politics can explain the differences in learning outcomes. So what you learn in the class, we cannot trace back to the politics and the power relations and so on. So what can you trace? So what we are trying to do in this book is to say that there is quite a clear and researchable politics of the extent to which governments take up reforms that are likely to improve the quality of what goes on okay. in the classroom. And so in particular, we're looking at really two kinds of things. One is uh, teacher training and teacher management and kind of accountability for what goes on in the classroom. So to the government? Yeah, upwards and downwards, really, if you like. You, know, you don't talk much about downwards. It's mainly a resource management issue, isn't it? It's a resource management issue, but there is, when you look at the, um, and, uh, you know, you'd have to, there's, it's a long book, isn't it? But we do do, in, in each of the countries, I think in each of the countries, I think maybe we didn't so much in one country, but we've done, we've, we've, we've traced through the politics from the centre, from the top, from, the, from the, the capital city all the way down to certain schools. We selected good and bad schools in rich and poor areas to try and understand the dynamics, you know, a classic two by two mm -hmm. political science type approach, um, to understand what was really going on at the classroom level. And so you do see, and it turns out to be very important, and those people who know a lot about education, who spend a lot of time in classrooms, know that this is the case, that the local dynamics of accountability t turn out to be very important. So whether, whether the communities are in a position to actually put pressure on head teachers and teachers to make sure they show up, to make sure their kids are learning, depends quite a lot on local dynamics. Okay, but that. those local dynamics are also very, very um, directly shaped by the policies that come from the top. So in Ghana, for instance, the decentralization policies have really created quite a lot of space for what we call district level coalitions, so local coalitions to, to kind of push for better learning in some places, but not in others. There's quite a lot of discretion because actually there's very little pressure coming from the top to make sure that kids are learning stuff in classrooms. And is one of your findings that what we often find on educational research that it's all down to head teachers that they can have a huge impact in assembling those kind of local coalitions, or is that exaggerated? I mean, that is that's you know yeah. I've, all the research I've done on education always does at the end of the day say there's some kind of magic going on. The head teacher the is super head. Yeah, she's a she's a wizard or whatever she is, um, or they are um, that makes all the difference. But you know, head teachers. They need both the kind of regulations, if you like, the discipline. They need to be held accountable by education administrations. They also need to be held accountable by parents and communities. And where you get that, you do, and you have the right resources, you do get, you do get very effective schools. But I think the the South African case studies um, show that there's, you know, there there are real variations in 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 the ways in which kind of we call horizontal uh, types of. Um, 
what does he call them, horizontal types of governance. So, so the kind of pressures from the community mm-hmm. make a difference in some settings, but don't in others where uh, more hierarchical types of management seem to work better in some. So you, yes, head teachers make a real difference, but there's a reason they why they operate they within a, a system yeah. and within the, they have agency within a structure. Yeah, exactly. The usual sort of yeah. tensions. Well, yes, precisely. Okay. But, uh, the, but head teachers really are very important, yes. And one of the things you haven't mentioned, which is interesting, is money. Because a lot of yeah. education uh, campaigners say, give more money, give more money, give more money. You're saying that money is not the main problem? Well, no, this is a bit controversial. Um, I'm a social scientist. I have two hands. Yeah, so on the one <laughs> hand. Uh, so for me, it's very clear that you know, overall, like some of these really significant systemic failures do relate to the fact that these are, on the whole, quite under-resourced systems, serving first-generation learners, serving children whose parents didn't go to school, who are not rich people, who maybe don't have the time, don't know how to read, maybe don't know how to help their children with, with their teaching, with their learning, don't know, don't know to, what to ask the teachers. So resources do matter at several different levels. Certainly at the level of the community, poor communities are less likely to, to have the kinds of educational background. So we, you know, I think, I think when, when, when education reformers, this is, this is just, you know, this is not in the book, this is just what I think. I think education reformers, we're all experts on education, right? We all went to school, right? <laughs> we all have kids. So I yeah. think this is one of the problems is with, with education uh, policy makers. We all know, you know, we, we know how, we know how to hold the teacher to account. We know what a good parent should do and so on. Actually, first-generation learners, this is a very different situation. You know, they, they haven't had that experience very often. The parents don't know what to ask. So resources matter at that level. Resources do matter, of course. If, if, if teachers are being very poorly paid, they will be freelancing. A, lot, a really big problem in lots of countries and in a lot of the case studies we looked at is that teachers are freelancing. They're giving private tuition. They're, they're doing their farms. They're you know, going off to do business on the side because they really aren't being paid enough. There's an issue of of status and respect and so on, teachers need to have that. They need to have that innate, um, what's the word, innate motivations to, to work. But, you know, if you can't feed your own family on what you're being paid, it's quite hard to feel motivated, you know? Okay. And there's another issue which... So, but so, wait, no, let me just oh, say some more about money. About yes. Money. So there is a big debate, and I have to say, um, and my husband actually has worked a lot on this, on does money matter and the ways in which money does matter. We have these fights at home all the time. I'm always saying, no, resources do matter. And he says, no, no, uh, resources don't matter as much as you think. And who does your husband work for? He works for the World Bank. (laughs) So I should, that should be full disclosure because we do actually engage quite a lot with the work that the World Bank did on the World Development Report on Education. Um, And we take issue with some of it. Um, And not only over the dinner table, but you know, in the book as well. Um, this, this, this interview is going in an interesting direction. <laughs> He's not going to thank me for it at all. But nevertheless, um, he, so his view, and I think there are quite a few scholars who said this, that mu- does money matter? Well, actually, you can get very different outcomes with the same kind of spending. And again, the governance really, you know, how this money is being spent really makes a big difference. So I, I will give him that. All right. Well, that's nice. Um, so let's go on to the teachers, because w- one of the things that strikes me when I hear people who are deeply committed to education, researchers, academics, um, is that they often seem to really hate teachers. 
the, 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 you know, you get this, if we could only <laughs> smash the teachers' unions who are just forces of conservatism and make sure that, yeah, uh, that, and get, replace them with people who just parrot stuff off an iPad and have no discretion at all, then we could improve teaching. And there is this weird anti, quite strong current of anti-union feeling within the education reform people. Well, Where we, are you at on this discussion? No, we, we, I'm, that, that's, again, pretty much a, quite a World Bank, and there are some other um, uh, proponents of that view who, who do take that view. Um, you know, the literature does seem to suggest that teacher unions have had quite a, a big hand in blocking quality reforms in some countries. I think Mexico and India do stand out in that. Um, my view is is that there there is also counter evidence, um, counter examples to that, and uh, we in our case study certainly teacher unions and, and and collective action by teachers doesn't really emerge as a big blocker at all. Okay. We don't really see much sign of it at all. Some of the teacher unions are not very strong. I did try to float the argument that actually teachers have so much holding power in some of these political settlements in some of these in some of these countries that actually stuff just stays off the agenda. Like stuff never mm -hmm. gets on the Veto political agenda. Power. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't, they don't even have to organize because everyone knows it's untenable. But I, you know, we can't actually see any evidence of that. It's really yeah. hard to research that kind of invisible power. So we don't, we don't, we can't really say, we can't really support this view that unions are. But I was bad. interested that in the book, at a couple of points, you say, um, we think carrots work better than sticks, which is very different from the, we must break and discipline these pesky teachers. I think you know. I think a lot. Of the, there's again a lot of debate about this, and 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 you know, certainly the the randomisters of this world would say no, no. Contract teachers are better because you can just fire them, and and they'll do really well. But the evidence is that over time systems just can't rely on on short-term contracts. Over time, systems have to rely on on profession a, a strong professional teaching ethos. And in the countries where you see some signs that they're moving towards, are really trying to improve the quality. It hasn't been by beating up the teachers for not showing up on time. It's been trying to instill a strong professional ethos, giving them better training, giving them kind of, I'm not quite sure what the word is, but, you know, a, a sense of a sense of professional dignity and, and so on. And yeah, you the, quote, I think, Lauren Pritchard a couple of times saying the talk about the craft of teaching. Yeah. But this is, this is something... Well, you're a teacher now, so you know. Yeah. I right? Could, I could do with some teacher training. Yeah, well, so, so could I. But, yeah. you know, it's, you know what it's like. It's, you know, it, mm. and it is, it's, it's often imperfect, done really well. It's amazing done really poorly, just don't bother. But it is, you, you have to, to be a good teacher, you really have to have an innate, innate sense of a real desire to do it. And I'd say that in, in the literature in, in development and education, the scholars of, of education development really are from two disciplines, economics, and they're very worried about money and uh, you know, outcomes and so on, and, um, and from education itself. You get a lot of former teachers, people who know about pedagogy, who know about curriculum and so on. And people like me who are kind of neither and in between sociologists and so on, we're not, we're not, there aren't many, many of us doing this kind of research. I think there's more coming up more and more, but you know, it's, so it's, you've kind of had this debate that's been on two sides, actually not really speaking to each other often, I think, on okay. this issue and others. Let's move on. Um, you've got this uh, categorization of competitive versus dominant, which loosely maps to democracy versus autocracy, right? I think. Let's not get into a big political no, science sure. thing. Okay, yeah, let's stick no, with, let's really not. <laughs> okay, so let's stick with competitive versus dominant. Yeah. So which of those two finds it easier to pursue these kind of reforms of quality and why? Well, 
really is the, the, the key, you know, the, the nub of the book, really, I think, is that we went into this thinking, right, so we know that it's really easy to do reforms that expand access and that everyone's done them and, you know, very, very uh, dominant authoritarian states have, have expanded access and highly competitive democratic states have also expanded access for different reasons, but, you know, legitimacy, popularity, all sorts of reasons. But when it comes to the very difficult challenge of, 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 of holding teachers to account, of ensuring that um, you could assess what's going on in the classrooms, uh, uh, ensuring that people are equipped and show up and do what they're supposed to, when, when, it, when it comes to all of that, what you have is it's very, very difficult for, for, for Democrats to impose these things, if you like. And, and the idea we went into this book with was actually what we're going to find is that the dominant country. So we think Rwanda should be the one. Rwanda, Rwanda can do everything. Rwanda can do it. You know, they can do anything they like. They just have to say so sitting in Kigali and it'll be, you know, implemented all the way down to the schools. This is not what we found. You know, the picture is a bit more mixed even than that, but it's not what we found. So what we found is that... Um, you know, it, we, we concluded, I think, really, that if Rwanda wanted to, if Rwanda suddenly, you know, if, if the, the, the powers that be woke up one morning, decided, actually, you know what, the learning crisis, we have to deal with it. This is really important. They could probably implement quite a lot more than in some of these more fractious, competitive countries. But what we found is that in Ghana, um, I already said, you know, there's these kind of local level um, coalitions that really kind of help to... Ghana to being competitive, democratic. Com Ghana being competitive and democratic, exactly. And in Bangladesh, similarly, it's, it's competitive and democratic and it's very centralised as well. But this, essentially, the state, the state kind of leaves schools or has in the past left schools and, and communities to get on with it. So they have what we call policy space. In if you like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, kind of, um, you know, frontline discretion, if you like. So, you know, really, the magic is really in, in the relationships between the community and the school and, and so on. So that, this that is your point on local yeah. accountability and, and local peer accountability. Yeah, but, but in, in neither in Ghana and nor Bangladesh until recently, I would say, have you seen a lot, a big kind of central effort to put quality on the agenda. I mean, there's lots of talking about let's do learning reforms let's you know raise standards and so on but not not a great deal of effort there so I think what happens in the more competitive settings is that there is more pressure on governments to do something because the newspapers are reporting the dismal education results Ghana's in the in the is it the PISA oh is it the Tims I can't remember PISA, PISA yeah uh, it's two years ago we wrote this book, so, you know, <laughs> forgive me. But, um, but they, and they, you know, come bottom. Nevertheless, they, you know, they, they enter it each year. You know, they're trying, clearly trying, clearly well, taking it seriously. But in Rwanda, who's going to tell the government that they're doing it wrong? And you know what they did in Rwanda, which was really, um, really counterproductive, according to um, Tim Williams' case study in the book, is that they, you know, they decided to change the language of instruction from French to English pretty much overnight. It wasn't in the policy framework or anything like that. They decided this for reasons of their own, which are all set out very nicely in Tim Williams' work, um, and uh, you know, had really detrimental effects on, on, um, on learning outcomes because none of the teachers speak English. <laughs> oh dear. And there was no feedback loops to, to correct no that because loops. it's a dominant system. And no pressure on, on the, mm. the Rwandan elite, not from the donors, not from anyone, as far as we can tell, to do anything differently. So when they get it right, they do it right, and when they get it wrong, they do it wronger? Possibly. Okay. So this is the sort of Danny Roderick thing of, of the sort of stabilisation role of feedback loops in, in democracies, I suppose, applied to... 
social provision. Yeah, I, I, I don't tend to really read economists for my political. But you sometimes science. have some interesting <laughs> ideas. Well, only Danny Roderick. Really, <laughs> no, okay. of course, of course. <laughs> no, I, I, that's very possible. Yes. Okay, last last bit. We've got a, a few more minutes. Um, so what? Okay, you, uh, this is the bit that everybody squirms. We're at a research conference at the moment, and the researchers burble on about their research, and then someone like me or someone from different says, "So what? What do we do differently?" And they all kind of look slightly sick and don't want to say it. So <laughs> let's let's hear. What are your so what's? What well, have the, you got yeah. that aid uh, aid organisations or NGOs or outsiders generally? What what do we take away from this book for the many people who are not going to read it? Mm. No, I'm sure they're all going to read it. It's, it's open access, about? by the way. It's it is free open online. access. Yeah, anyone can read it. Everyone okay. who keeps writing to me on ResearchGate, please, you can actually read the whole book for free. I'll put a link can to it on the blog. Promise, I'll put a link. I okay. Start. So the so what? So I thought I was going to avoid that by just wibbling on until the no end. Chance. No chance. Come on. <laughs> um, I think really the, the answer here is that it's a, it's a good answer. It's one we've heard a lot of in the last few days here at the ESA conference. The blueprints don't work. Don't go in with best practice. Don't enforce uh, reforms that really there aren't the capacities to okay. implement. So that's what not to do? Yeah. And what, and to, what do? to do, I think, is to, and, and I think Sam writes about this very nicely in the, in the last chapter, is, 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 you know, best fit practices. And I think, I think that's, that's really learning. It, it's, about, it's about having... Uh, reform programs that really are suited to are knowledgeable about are grounded in the local context and and have a very good understanding of actually what's going on and don't try to you know put enormous demands on teachers i think somebody said yesterday was it was it learnt again 21st century skills let's start with 19th century let's start with reading and writing <laughs> you know try and try and fit your your reform solution to the problem you actually have the capacities that you actually have but i think the other thing i got from the book is that the the role of outsiders is to promote the coalitions not to guess what the Absolutely. answers they have to find the answers and and, and outsiders promote the conversations and the coalitions which can then right. find them, right? I think that's right. That b building the kinds of, creating the kinds of spaces where these, these debates can happen, where people can talk about learning, where people can talk about actually what, what the, uh, also where people can, can look at the data about what's happening. I think this is one of the things that the World Development Report on Education 2017 did very well, was to point out that, was to point out the need for assessment systems, for assessment systems that really did that actually, you know, let you track what's going on. If you can't really monitor learning, if you don't have systems for knowing who's learning what, that's pretty disastrous. So you need to have those. But certainly building coalitions. I think, you know, civil, we don't actually talk about civil society or any of that really very much in the book, and partly because we just didn't find much evidence of, of um, civil society having a big impact on, on the learning agenda. There's clearly a lot of space here for that. And uh, so last point, which I should have picked up earlier, really. I mean, who are the... You talk about creating coalitions behind quality, improvement of quality. Who are the groups in society that care about quality? Because you said, you, you laid out very clearly who cares about quantity, mm. which is basically everybody, including aid donors. Who cares about quality within countries? Is it a middle class thing? Is it a well, business thing? I mean, that is, the, that is the challenge partly is that the, it is a middle class thing to a significant extent. And the middle class in a lot of these countries has exited from the public sector um, where they were before. Um, but I think that um, I think I think actually it's, this is partly about creating this idea that learning matters, and I think this is coming. As I said, you know, first generation learners, parents of first generation learners, don't really know what to ask for, don't know what to expect. I think it's coming in a lot of these countries where you've got 
second generations now of going to school, parents are a bit better informed, know what to ask for, you can start to build coalitions. I think really creating a debate about what kids are learning in school is very important. I'm not sure that they are very clear. There are some policy champions, policy entrepreneurs in, 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 I think in the Cambodia case study in particular, Tim Kelsall and his colleagues show very nicely the emergence of a policy champion there who's beginning to make a real difference, putting learning quality agenda on the, on the, on the political agenda there. Um, but actually, there's a lot of work to be done there to even create a kind of demand. And the book doesn't really go into the public v. private um, quagmire, which is where most of these conversations get started. Yeah. I mean, I'm very fiercely on the public, and I see the provision of private as a problem for all sorts of reasons. Sucks out too. teachers, sucks out middle-class parents, reduces the strength of the lobby for quality. Yeah. Are you coming from that sort of place no, too? I, we, didn't, we deliberately did not enter into that debate because there is, I think it's heated and not always very constructive, uh, debate. I, I think that the, from what I've seen, the evidence that low-cost private schools uh, produce better learning, or even NGO schools produce better learning, is very, very weak. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, the public schools are—it's it's the system. We we focused essentially on. on and that's the, still where most system. kids are. St- uh, by far the majority, right, yeah. Okay. By far the majority, and in my view, that's where it it will remain, and also that's where it should remain. Okay. Naomi Hussain, thank you very much for coming on the blog. Uh, the book is The Politics of Education in Developing Countries, From Schooling to Learning. Uh, it's open access. I'll stick a link on the blog. And thanks very much. Thank you, Duncan.